All right, praises be to our loving Father that we are able to continue to study the words of Yahuwah Abba through the Holy Scriptures. Of course, we are ongoing in our studies of the book of Revelation. We are going through the seven seals. We finished up the six trumpets. But before we go ahead and conclude the sixth trumpet, uh, we need to look into Revelation chapter 11, Revelation 9, the latter parts of Revelation chapter 9. Uh, it taught us and showed us how the last or the sixth trumpet was fulfilled and it was pointing to a future world war, perhaps world war number three. However, we know that the event associated with trumpet number six, it's much more comprehensive and it includes a spiritual aspect that we need to be aware of. Hence, uh, trumpet six does not conclude until the latter parts of Revelation chapter 11. So we went with Revelation 10, which we studied last week. And today we're going to look into Revelation 11, which talks about the assembly and the two witnesses. Take note, the last three, uh, three trumpets are also known as woes. So trumpet five began the first woe, trumpet six, the second woe, trumpet seven, the third woe, which leads us to the harpazo and the outpouring of the wrath of Yahuwah upon the face of the earth. So Revelation 10 reveals the little scroll and the seven thunders. We talked about that last week. And the voice of the seven thunders basically announces the beginning of the last seven years of Yahuwah's 490-year plan for the restoration of Israel and salvation for mankind, which is the work of the assembly of Yahusha. And the little scroll represents uh, the work and promise of restoration that lead to the harpazo. And those who are not harpazo or raptured, they will witness and experience the outpouring of the wrath of Yahuwah Abba upon the face of the earth. We don't want to be left behind. What we want is to be harpazoed because we want to receive Yahuwah's blessing on that day when Yahuwah begins to pour out his wrath. Also associated with the sounding of the, the seventh trumpet that we discussed in Revelation chapter 10 is the mystery that will be accomplished, which we know is talking about the coming of the lawless one or the Antichrist, also the beast powers, the harpazo or the rapture and the preaching of the gospel to bring salvation to Gentiles and to restore Israel from its blindness. These are the mystery that will be fulfilled, uh, which is associated with the sounding of the last trumpet. So having all of that as our foundation, we are now set to look into Revelation chapter 11. Let's begin by reading 11 verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And so at the beginning of Revelation chapter 11, the Apostle John is instructed to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And so one of the major subjects of Revelation 11 and the events leading up to the end of trumpet number six is the temple of God. Now, what is the Greek word used there for temple? We need to look into that because it's relevant in our study. Because just because it says in English temple, it doesn't mean it's always represented by the same Greek word. For example, in Revelation 11, we use the word temple of God. Luke 21, 37 also uses the word temple 
right? But these two Greek words are actually different. And we, we will show that to you in the next slide. You notice on the left is the English translation. On the right is the Greek equivalent, right? And so when we look at the left, Revelation 11, 1, it says temple of God. Luke 21, 37, it mentions uh, also the word temple. However, these two words translated as temple in the English are come from two different Greek words. In Revelation 11, where it speaks about the temple of God, the Greek word used is naos, uh, Greek 3, 4, 8, 5. And in Luke, the Greek word used is hieron. So naos for Revelation 11.1, 1, hieron for Luke 21.37. Now, what is the meaning of hieron? Let's look at the lexicon, the Strong's definition, Thayer's Greek definition, according to the, uh, the dictionary, the definitions. It represents basically the physical temple, the structure itself, the entire precinct or edifice of the, uh, the temple. Notice it mentions in Strong's definition and also Thayer's Greek lexicon that it's differentiated from the other Greek word, 3484, which denotes the central sanctuary itself. If you still remember, the temple or the tabernacle had different parts. You have the, you have the outer court, right? And you also have the inner court. The inner court consists of two parts, the holy place and the most holy place. You have the outward court, and only those who are priests are allowed to enter the inner court. That's the special place where you have the holy place and the most holy place. In the most holy place, only the high priest can go there once a year. So that's the structure of the temple or the tabernacle. So when it's using the Greek word hieron, it represents the physical structure itself. However, when it uses naos, as in Revelation 11.1, 1, take note, we are studying about the temple, the naos of Yahuwah mentioned in 11.1. 1. When that Greek word is used, it's referring to the sacred edifice consisting of the holy place and the holy of holies or the most holy place, or it's referring to the spiritual temple. And so we know that when naos is used, it could be referring to the spiritual temple and not the physical temple. This is why we believe Revelation 11.1, 1, the temple of God mentioned there, is not the physical temple, but the spiritual temple. Why do we believe this? Because during the Christian era, there's no need for you to be inside a physical temple to be able to worship Yahuwah. Remember what our... Uh, master said, Yahusha said, you can, you worship Yahuwah in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter where you are, you can worship Yahuwah. And so the spiritual temple, what is it made of? Let's read the book of First Peter 2, 5 to 7. Come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual Temple, where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Yahushua Christ. The spiritual temple, what is it made of? What are its building blocks? The Bible says living stones. That's why the spiritual temple is different from a physical 
temple, a physical temple is made of non-living materials, right? But the spiritual temple, it's made of living stones. Well, who are the living stones? 2 Corinthians 6.16, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And so the living stones, which comprise the spiritual temple, which is being described in Revelation 11.1, 1, is composed of human beings. People are living stones. This is why in Corinthians 3.16-17, surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple, for God's temple is holy, and you yourselves are his temple. So the living stones are composed of people. What kind of people? How can we recognize the spiritual temple composed of human beings who are living stones? Let's look at Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Yahushua, Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit, how can we recognize the people who are the living stones that comprise the spiritual temple that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 11 and the verse is one. We recognize them by their foundation, a physical temple. Does it have a foundation? Yes. And that's the most important part of an edifice, the foundation, right? Because without the proper foundation, you can't build anything worthwhile on it. You need to have a foundation. Your foundation determines the strength and worth of the building. And so we need to have the proper foundation, the spiritual temple. Who is the foundation? It is Yahushua himself. We who are living stones are built upon him. And collectively, we are called the holy temple in Yahuwah. And Yahuwah God will manifest and dwell himself. He will dwell there amongst us, the people who are built upon Yahusha as our foundation stone. Can there be any other foundation uh, that is that can be laid? Let's read the book of Corinthians 3. For God has already placed Yahusha Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. Surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple, for God's temple is holy, and you yourselves are his temple. And so, so far, what we can confirm without any doubt is that there is a temple of God composed of people, human beings who are built upon Yahushua as their foundation. In other words, they're baptized into Yahushua. They have fellowship with Yahushua. They profess their faith in Yahushua because their foundation is who? Yahushua HaMashiach. And so we can recognize the temple of God in Revelation 11, verse 1, because they are people founded upon Yahushua 
HaMashiach. Well, how does Revelation 11 describe the people who were built upon Yahusha as the foundation stone? We know that we have Yahusha as our foundation, and because of that relationship, well, what are what characteristics do they have? Let's go back to Revelation 11, verse 1. It says, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. The altar referred to there is the altar in the Holy of Holies, not the altar of sacrifice, but the altar of incense that represents true worship, acceptable worship. Where is it found? Inside the tent in the Holy of, in the uh, Holy Place. Well, who are allowed to enter the holy place? Who are the people who worship there? They are priests. And so this is something we need to keep in mind. Revelation 11.1 1 tells us the people who represent the spiritual temple in Revelation 11.1 1 are people who are priests. Because if they're not priests, can they be allowed to go inside the naos of God? They're not allowed. They have to be priests. And so who are these priests? And who are they that are built upon Yahushua as the foundation? Let's go back to Peter. Come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple where you will serve as, what does it say? Holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Yahushua Christ. For the scripture says, I chose a valuable stone, which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion. And whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. And so how, who are those who are priests and are found inside the altar and they represent the living stones that are the the building blocks upon Yahushua's the foundation stone of the spiritual temple of Yahuwah. Well, they are those who have become priests because of Yahushua. Did you know how we became priests through Yahushua? Let's read the book of Revelation 1, 5 to 6. And from Yahushua Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how did we become uh, priests because of the blood of our king, Yahusha? Because of his blood, our sins were washed and we were because if it was watched, we were presented or incorporated into his body. And because we are in his body, we are able to acquire the priesthood of Yahushua. What is the priesthood of Yahushua? It's not the Aaronic priesthood, but the Melchizedek priesthood. There's a difference. For you to become a priest using the Aaronic priesthood, you have to be a blood and flesh relative of Aaron, right? To be a Levite. And so not many of us can claim that. But the people spoken of in Revelation 11, they are priests, not because of the Aaronic priesthood, but because of the Melchizedek priesthood. 
right? In other words, because of their union, because of their foundation in Christ, Yahushua, they have become priests, they have become kings because of the authority of our Messiah, our master, Yahushua. Therefore, the temple of God in Revelation 11.1 1, is composed of people who are built upon Yahushua as the foundation and they serve as priests. That's who we are in Christ Yahushua. We are priests and kings. And so we know the temple of God in Revelation 11.1 1 is the ecclesia, the collective body of Yahushua, or it is called the assembly because the English, the most accurate English translation of the Greek word ecclesia is what? Assembly. Not church, but assembly. Well, how can we recognize the ecclesia or the assembly described in Revelation 11? Well, we know in 2 Chronicles 7, 15 and 16, because we are speaking about the temple of Yahuwah, my eyes will be open and my ears will pay attention to those prayers at this place. I have chosen and declared this temple holy so that my name may be placed there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Yahuwah loves his temple. And so he says, my name may be placed there forever. But during our time, there is a temple that is close and dear to the heart of Yahuwah. What is that temple? It is the temple that represents you and I, the people. That's why Apostle Paul says, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Well, because we are the temple, we must now bear the name. The name that will last forever. What could that name be? Acts 4, 10 to 12, let it, be, let it be known to you all and to all the people are of Israel that by the name of Yahushua Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How can we? recognize the ecclesia, the assembly mentioned in Revelation 11? Well, it must bear the name for salvation. What is that name for salvation? It is the name of Yahushua, the only name given for our salvation. And it's a wonderful name because Yahushua means Yahuwah saves. And for Yahuwah to save, he had to sacrifice his son. It communicates the ultimate sacrifice of the Father when he gave up his son for our salvation. This is why the name Yahushua is the name that identifies the foundation, identifies the head, and those who are in the temple, the spiritual temple composed of spiritual stones. This is why when the prophecy was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah concerning those who will be brought together, the people of Yeshurah, Isaiah 43, 5 to 7, do not be afraid because I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not keep them. Bring my sons from far away, from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Bring everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That name that Yahuwah God created for his glory is created and attached to the one he made for our salvation, Yahushua HaMashiach himself. And so we can know 
the temple of God in Revelation 11.1, 1, right, is the ecclesia, which is the assembly. It bears the name of Yahusha. Hence, it is the assembly of Yahusha. And so right at the beginning of Revelation 11.1, 1, it's mentioning, it mentions uh, the assembly of Yahusha. That's because Revelation 11.1, by that time, there's already an assembly of Yahusha. It's already in existence. And because it's already in existence, what is the promise of, to the assembly of Yahusha in Revelation 11? It's a wonderful promise. And you might not um, be acquainted and perhaps not perceive the promise when you read it uh, at first glance. Let's look at that promise. And I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. And so the Bible tells us, Apostle John was given a reed, uh, like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. What does that mean? It means Yahuwah is going to give us He's up to something. Yahuwah is going to fulfill a promise of prosperity. Because when Yahuwah asks us to measure something, he wants us to measure how great his blessing is. And he's going to give a blessing to the temple of God or the ecclesia. What is that blessing? Well, we find the clue in what is given here. Apostle John is told that he was given a measuring rod and he was asked to measure the temple of God. Remember, when we read Revelation, to understand it, we need to look back at the Old Testament, right? Because the Old Testament gives us the meaning of idioms and symbols that we can use so that we can understand the book of Revelation. That's why you cannot have the New Testament independent of the Old Testament and vice versa. They're connected together to understand both books. You need to read them as a whole because it's only authored by one who is Yahuwah. Many writers, but one author. And so there is this unity in all of scripture. So we read here about measuring, a measuring rod. We read here about some measuring uh, the temple of God. Something similar to that is found in the book of Zechariah. To one to two. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And so here the prophet Zechariah, right? Prophet Zechariah is be sees in his vision a man. Uh, with a measuring line in his hand. Isn't this similar to what Apostle John received, right? The, uh, a measuring rod, here's a measuring line. And he was asked to measure Jerusalem. In Revelation 11, Apostle John was asked to measure what? The temple. Here it's Jerusalem. So different, but there's some characteristics that we can get from the process of measuring. Remember, this was during the days of Zechariah. How many here know at what sequence, the chronological sequence of the history of God's people, can we find Zechariah, right? Well, it was during the captivity and the return. Remember, people of Israel, because of their sin, they were captives of Babylon, Syria first, and then Babylon, right? 
Eventually, because of Cyrus, he would give the decree to return and to rebuild the temple. And so those who began to rebuild the temple was Zerubbabel. He was the governor of Judah. When they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, Zerubbabel led the building of the temple. However, they struggled a bit and they were only able to build the foundation. And then Zechariah comes to prophesy. Okay, that's the time frame. Zechariah is given a message. Zechariah was prophesying during the days when Ezra was the scribe. And why was this significant? Ezra 9.15, O Yahuwah God of Israel, you were righteous for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. So Zechariah, he was prophesying to the remnant, especially Zerubbabel and also Joshua the high priest who were struggling with rebuilding the temple because the remnant together with Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, their task was to rebuild the temple. However, while they were struggling, Zechariah gets an inspiring message. He was being asked to measure Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? That he was being asked to measure Jerusalem. Let's keep reading three to five. And there was the angel who talked with me going out and another angel was coming out to meet him who said to him, run, speak to this young man saying, here it is, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says Yahuwah, will be a wall of fire all around her and I will be the glory in her midst. And so during the days of restoration there were there was a time of the remnant they were in the process of rebuilding everything right and they had leaders like Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and so while this was taking place they receive an inspiring message and the inspiring message is Jerusalem shall be inhabited that's why he was told to measure Jerusalem Yahuwah was telling Zechariah I want you to measure this because I want you to see just how much Jerusalem is going to be blessed. And, and the Bible even says, shall be inhabited as towns without walls. What does that mean? No boundaries, no need for protection. Why? Because Yahuwah himself will be like a fire. He'll be the one to protect Jerusalem. Not only that, his glory will be in her midst. Do you know what this is about? You know what this is a prophecy of? It's a prophecy of the millennial kingdom. So when he was told to measure, he was prophesying about the millennial kingdom. This is why Revelation 11.1 promises that the millennial kingdom is coming soon. But before this happens, before the millennial kingdom comes, something must happen first. There are three events that are going to happen first. What are these three events? Well, let's go ahead and look at Revelation 11, uh, two down to three. We're going to go backwards, okay? But do not measure the outer courts because they have been given to the heathen who will trample on the holy city for 42 months. I will send my two witnesses dressed in sackcloth, and they will proclaim God's message during those 1,260 days. Remember, these are, there's a promise, that's given in Revelation 11.1. 1. There's going to be the coming of the millennial kingdom. However, before this promise is fulfilled, there are certain events that must happen first. What is one event? Well, there are two events mentioned here in Revelation 11. 
uh, two down to three, one that will last for 42 months and one that will last for 1,260 days. If you do the math, 42 months consisting of 30 days each equals what? 1,260 days. When we use the biblical years, 1,260 days is equivalent to how many years? 3.5 years. So there are two events taking place here. One event is going to last 3.5 years, and the other event is going to last 3.5 years. 3.5 plus 3.5, what do you get? Seven. This is what the seven thunders is all about. The, the last seven years of the plan of Yahuwah for Israel to be restored. And so it is being divided. It's telling us what's going to happen in those seven years. Two events comprising seven years. This is why in Daniel 9.27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one, seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And so according to the prophet Daniel, when he spoke about end time events, this is why Gabriel told him, you know, the things I revealed to you, seal them up until the time of the end, because they're not going to be understood. It can only be understood when it's already close to the end of the world. Now we can understand what the prophet Daniel is talking about. He's talking about the last seven years. And this is the, the final countdown, so to speak. Right, And so there's going to be the start of it, which is the confirming of a covenant, which will last for how long? Seven years. And at the middle of the seven, after 3.5 years, there's going, to be a, there's going to be an abomination that causes desolation. This will happen at the midpoint. So if we have the last seven years, we have the midpoint. To the left and to the right, we have 3.5 years because they both add up to seven years 3.5 years the equivalent is 42 months 42 months with 30 30 days each is equivalent to 1260 days so when we look at these two events uh the trampling of the holy city for 42 months and the proclaiming of god's message for 1260 days by two witnesses they correspond to the two halves of the last seven years. Which one is going to happen first? The proclaiming of God's message. This is why when we look at this graphic, the last seven years, when the Antichrist, who will not be yet fully revealed, when he will make a treaty or a covenant with many, and it starts the seven-year period, at that time, the two witnesses are going to begin proclaiming the message of Yahuwah. For how long? 1,260 days or 3.5 years. Well, who are these two witnesses? What will they proclaim? What is the message of Yahuwah that they will proclaim? Revelation 11, 4-6. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So they have powers. Can you imagine the kind of power they have? Fire comes out of their mouth and they devour their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. 
These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And so our question is, what is the nature of the work of these two, two witnesses? What is their message? What will they prophesy about? Well, the Bible tells us two important clues about the message that they're going to be testifying of. What are these clues? Number one, they have the power to shut heaven so that no one, no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. What does that remind you of? Remember, to understand Revelation, we need to understand the Old Testament. We cannot decipher Revelation without background knowledge of the Old Testament. This is why it's so important that we know the contents of the Old Testament. Because here, the Apostle John is speaking about something all the Hebraic people know and understand. This is automatic to them. What is that? Who do they think of when they speak of shutting heaven so that no rain falls? It is the prophet Elijah. And how about this one? The power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues. When you teach this to people who are educated in the Hebrew scriptures, what comes to mind? It is Moses. And so we know the message of the two witnesses will be in the spirit and power of Elijah and Moses. Well, what does that mean? And what is its purpose? Uh -huh. Let's find out. Malachi chapter 4, 4 to 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Oreb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahuwah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so the Bible tells us the, the message that will be proclaimed by the two witnesses. What is that message? It is the message that was proclaimed by Moses and Elijah for the purpose of what? For the purpose of restoration. This is why in verse 6 it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. You see, during the days of Solomon, remember him? It was the golden age of the people of Yisrael. Because during the, the days of Solomon, they dedicated what? The temple. But after Solomon's time, it all went backwards. Until the, the kingdom split in two. And then the two became captives. And then it was never really restored after that. If there were minor restorations, it was not completely restored. It wasn't until Yahushua, preached by John the Baptist, was restoration uh, initialized again. But they rejected Yahushua. They rejected John the Baptist. And so the fulfillment of this prophecy had to wait until the end times. Right before the great and dreadful day of Yahuwah. What's the purpose then of the two witnesses? Purpose of Yahuwah in sending the two witnesses is to convince people to repent. This is why they wear sackcloth. They want people to repent and to return to Yahuwah. How can they return to Yahuwah? By remembering the law of Moses. Okay, that's one part. They want to, the, the message of the, the, the two witnesses 
is to preach uh, the law of Moses and to bring people back to Yahuwah. But that's not the only thing that the, the message of the two witnesses are going to bring. Those, that sets up the main message of the two witnesses. But what we can gain from the Malachi prophecy is that the two witnesses, the spirit and power by which they will present the message is going to follow this prophecy. And so we studied these, this before, Malachi 4, the third Elijah, right? We know that the third Elijah, which is representative of the two witnesses, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will appear immediately prior to the great day of Yahuwah. He will appear during a time of great apostasy. His work involves restoring Yasharal. His work involves proclaiming the name Yahuwah. His work involves proclaiming Yahuwah as the only true Allahim. His work involves restoring the Ten Commandments. That's the spirit of the, the Elijah of Malachi chapter 4, which is the spirit and power of the two witnesses. And so the two witnesses who are going to be sent by Yahuwah, what will become of the fruit of the work of the two witnesses? What were they for? Let's read Revel Romans 11, 1 down to 5. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Yahuwah, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time. There was a remnant chosen by grace. And so what is going to be the fruit of the work of the two witnesses? Elijah, when he was sent by Yahuwah during the days of apostasy, because during those days, who was the king? Remember, Ahab, who was the queen? Jezebel, the tandem really brought great apostasy. The people of Israel, they worshiped Baal and Ashtoreth instead of who? Yahuwah. Elijah thought he was there by himself, right? But then Apostle Paul tells us, no, Apostle uh, Elijah thought that there was only him by himself. But no, there were others set apart by Yahuwah, a remnant chosen by Yahuwah, who did not bow the knee to Baal. And this is also true during our time. The two witnesses when they will begin to proclaim their message, right? When they do so, the result or work of their message is to add to the remnant. Because when Elijah, the prophet, began to preach and he challenged the uh, Baal, or when he challenged Ahab and the prophets of Baal, remember the challenge? What happened after that? Because of the testimony of prophet Elijah, Many people repented and they returned to Yahuwah. And so the same thing is going to happen. There's a remnant, that is the ecclesia, the assembly. But the two witnesses will testify a message because of the message that, will, that they will testify. It's going to have such a profound effect. The remnant, the existing assembly, is going to add to their number. 
It's going to be a great harvest for the assembly. Just like the remnants of 7,000 back in the days of Elijah, when Elijah gave his testimony, there was a great harvest so that the remnant became big and strong and great again. So we can expect the same thing from the two witnesses. They will proclaim the message of God for 1,260 days, three and a half years. There's going to be a great harvest for the assembly of Yahushua. However, right after that, what's going to happen? Bible says the holy city will be trampled for how long? 42 months. How long is that? 1,260 days. But why does it say the holy city is going to be trampled for 42 months? 7 to 8. When they finish their testimony, whose testimony is that? Two witnesses. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so why does it say that after the work of the two witnesses, the holy city, which is Jerusalem, is going to be trampled on by heathens and Gentiles. That's because something will happen to the two witnesses after they give their testimony, right? What will happen to the two witnesses? They will be killed. Who's going to kill them? The beast. Who is the beast? We don't know yet. We might have clues, but he's a human being. But he's not just a human being. He's going to be the ultimate manifestation of the Antichrist. One of the first and powerful uh, manifestations of the Antichrist was who? Nimrod. When he built the Tower of Babel. That was the Babylonian system. It was a system to rebel against Yahuwah. There's going to be a future Nimrod, the beast, who will empower the beast. Revelation 13, 4 to 5. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months. This corresponds to the last half of the seven years when they're going to be ruling in power beginning at the midpoint when they will cause the abomination of desolation and so this beast is going to rule for 42 months and what does it mean that they're going to rule for 42 months daniel 7 21 to 22 while i was looking that horn remember he started out as a little horn right person that nobody was paying attention to all of a sudden, because of his schemes, his ability to persuade, his ability to convince, and his strategies, and the fact that he's empowered by the beast, I mean by the dragon, this little horn doesn't remain a little horn. He becomes a power, right? And he makes war on God's people and conquered them. Then one who had been living forever came and pronounced judgment in favor of the people of the supreme God. The time had arrived for God's people to receive royal power. You see, before the millennial kingdom comes, before the before the, the millennial kingdom comes, 
this beast is going to be ruling, right? He will speak against the supreme God and oppress God's people. He will try to change the religious laws and festivals, and God's people will be under his power for three and a half years. And so the, the beast powers will rule, the beast power will rule for 3.5 years. So in the last seven years, you have the two witnesses proclaiming God's message. And the mess, and after that, the beast will begin to rule. He actually starts the last seven years when he initiates the, the treaty, but he will not be fully manifested until the last 3.5 years. And so he's going to keep growing in power. He will have authority over the whole earth. And he will wage war eventually against Yahusha in Revelation 19. But he will be destroyed and devoured by the breath of his mouth. And so the two witnesses, when they proclaim the message, uh, what will happen to them after they die? What happened to them? Well, 9 to 10. And those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their body, their dead bodies, three and a half days, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And so after the beast kills the two prophets, the two witnesses, what would the world do? Are they going to rejoice? They're going to send gifts to each other. Why? Because they did not like the message of the two Prophets, should we be surprised about that? Nowadays, when we present the gospel message, nowadays, when we preach about Yahusha, when we preach the Ten Commandments, what is the reaction of the world? Do they love it or do they hate it? They hate it. So it's not surprising. When the two prophets are going to proclaim the message of Yahuwah, many are going to hate it because what people prefer is to be able to do whatever they want. This is why they're going to worship the beast. The beast will allow them to do that. Yes, they will worship the beast and give loyalty to the beast, but in return, they're going to receive favors, right? And so they love that. They love the peace and prosperity promised by the beast, but they do not want the teaching of our king, Yahusha. And so they will re reject the two prophets, or the two witnesses. And so they'll be put to death. They will remain lifeless for three and a half days. But after three and a half days, what will happen to them? I think this part you're going to like. 11.13. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so what happened after 3.5 days from the time uh, the beast kills the two witnesses? Bible says after 3.5 days, what happens to the two witnesses? They resurrect. Isn't that what it means, right? They stand on their feet after the breath of life from God enters them. So they resurrect. I don't know about you, but if you saw someone dead for three and a half days and all of a sudden they stand up on their feet, what would you do? How would you feel? 
You're going to be amazed, won't you? Right? I think many are going to be amazed. Many are going to be thinking about this event because this event is going to be broadcast throughout the world because of technology. It's going to be on TikTok, right? Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Everyone's going to know about it. Everyone's going to see, wait a minute, weren't they just dead 3.5 days ago? Oh, yeah. But now they're standing up. They resurrected. Not only did they resurrect, what did they do? Bible says they ascend to heaven. And so people are going to look. And as they ascend to heaven, something else happens. What is that? In the same hour, a great earthquake destroys the city. A tenth of it fell. And 7,000 people were killed. And many people became afraid. And they gave glory to who? To God. This is why we believe when the two witnesses will fulfill their testimony, right? When they speak and demonstrate their message, it's going to cause many people to return to Yahuwah through Yahusha. Why? Because what they did right here, them being put to death, resurrecting, ascending, what are they describing? What are they playing out? What are they enacting? The gospel message. You see, that's the main message. The main message of the two witnesses is to give a witness to who? Yahusha. Why two? Because the Bible says you need two witnesses to corroborate a matter, right? And so there are two witnesses. Who will they testify of? Yahusha. And so he's going to be preaching to all Yisharah, those who are from the islands of the sea. Those who are in Africa and elsewhere throughout the world, the people of Yisrael, they're going to see, you know what? This message is true. Yahushua is indeed the Messiah because they just, he just sent two witnesses that testify of him. So the two witnesses will give a powerful demonstration of the gospel of Yahushua. That's their purpose, to proclaim Yahushua. In the spirit and power of Elijah to bring all people back to Yahuwah through Yahushua. That is the message of the two witnesses. And right after they ascend to heaven, 11.14 says, the second woe is past. The sixth trumpet is concluded, right? Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That's why when the second woe passes... There's not much time between the end of the sixth trumpet and the blowing up. The seventh trumpet, which is, we know is the harpazo. And so we need to listen to the message and the testimony of the two witnesses. Yahuwah wants people to be saved. And this is why before the third woe comes, and it's going to come quickly. What does he want people to do? To repent. To repent and to return to Yahuwah through his son, Yahushua. That's what Yahuwah wants. That's why he gave power to his two witnesses. Well, who are the two witnesses? I don't know. I don't know who they are, right? Some say it's uh, Elijah and Enoch. And there are those who say, well, it represents the Old Testament and New Testament, right? There are those who say, well, the two witnesses are groups of people. One represents the church, one represents Israel, okay? But I believe they're two individual people. 
because some say the two witnesses are not two individual people, but two groups of people. Some suggest they represent church, the church and Yisrael, but they are two individual people. Why do we believe they're two individual people? Well, first of all, in Revelation 11, 3, the Bible uses the word witnesses. I will give power to my two witnesses. In Greek, that is the word martis, which is a witness in a legal and historical sense. In other words, the term martis, it's only used in reference to individuals and not groups of people. That's why it's called a witness. Two or more witnesses, a person, not a group of people. A group is more than two witnesses. So witness represents an individual. Two witnesses, two individuals. Why else do we believe that the two witnesses are individual people? Bible mentions that they are two prophets. Prophets who come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay. What else? The two prophets are going to be killed. And so if they are identified as two, as two prophets and they're going to be killed, it's kind of hard to justify the teaching and understanding that there are two, rep two groups of people. If that's the case, and all who are Israel and all who belong to Yahushua, they're all going to disappear by death. Well, how about when Yahushua returns, the Bible says there are those who were alive, right? So it doesn't make any sense, right? It cannot be two people because they're going to be killed. If you're going to say it's two, two groups of people and they're all going to be killed, well, then how many are going to be alive when Yahushua returns? And so we know it cannot be a group. It's individual. Uh, these are two individual people, two individual prophets. What else? They are going to resurrect and ascend. And so if these are two groups of people, or if it's the Old Testament and New Testament, how do you make sense of the fact that they're going to resurrect and ascend to heaven. Is this the rapture? It doesn't seem to be uh, substantiated by the biblical passage. And lastly, and this is most important of all, it gives us the details of who they are. The Bible says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So the fact that the Bible mentions olive trees and lampstands, many people suggest that it represents the, the Israel and the church. However, when we read Revelation, like what we said, we have to understand it using the terms identified already in the Old Testament, right? This is why when we want to know the interpretation of words in Scripture, we have to let in, uh, Scripture interpret itself. And so when we come across olive trees and lampstands, who do they represent? Groups of people or two individuals? Well, when was an occurrence in the Holy Bible where we read about olive trees and lampstands? Well, let's read. Zechariah. Remember him? Zechariah. When was he prophesying? During the time of restoration. When the people of Israel consisted of a remnant and they were trying to rebuild the temple. Remember? Zechariah. Let's go back to Zechariah because he has a message. Take a look at this. Now, the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. As a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold and a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it. 
one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. You notice in this description of the prophet Zechariah, he speaks of a lampstand and also olive trees, right? Who are, what's the, the, the lampstand and the olive trees about? Does Zechariah identify who they are? Let's read further, 11 to 14. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the earth. And so Zechariah, when he was, when he asked, you know, the lampstands, the olive trees, who are they? What are they? The answer of the angel was, these are the two anointed ones. In fact, the angel was looking at Zechariah and he was surprised. You don't know who they are. You should already know who the two are, right? Who are they? They are the two anointed ones. Notice these two anointed ones stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Doesn't that match the description of Revelation 11.4? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. There's a match, right? And so according to Zechariah, who are they? The two anointed ones. So there were two individuals, two anointed ones that the angel was talking about. And they are called lampstands and olive trees. Why? Because of the work that they're going to be doing and the work that they should have completed. Remember, Zechariah was prophesying during a time of discouragement. And there were, when there was a, a stop in the project of building, rebuilding the temple of Yahuwah, they stopped and they were only able to complete the, the foundation of the temple. And so this was during the days of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest were the two leaders. They were the two anointed ones who were supposed to lead the remnant in rebuilding the temple of Yahuwah. But it was stopped. And so Zechariah was sent to give them inspiration. And so what does Zechariah say to the two witnesses, to the two Anointed ones, it's Zechariah 3, 6 to 9, and the angel of Yahuwah admonished Joshua saying, thus says Yahuwah of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will also, I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch, for behold, the, stand, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says Yahuwah of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And so in the message of Zechariah, Joshua, one of the two anointed ones, was given admonition. What is the admonition? If you walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command. And so that's the message to Joshua. How about 
to Zerubbabel. In Zechariah 4, 8 to 9, moreover, the word of Yahuwah came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that Yahuwah of hosts has sent me to you. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah when they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And so Zerubbabel was leading them as the governor. Joshua, the high priest, who is bearing the name of Yahusha, because the translation of Joshua, the Hebrew word, actually, the Hebrew name actually is Yahusha, right? It's just transliterated Joshua for some reason in the English Bible. And so these two individuals are the anointed ones, and their purpose is to complete the rebuilding of what? The temple. And so when it was put to a halt, Zechariah, the prophet, was sent to give them admonition and encouragement. Not only Zechariah, Haggai was also sent. And this is Haggai's message, 1-1, in the second year of King Darius in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahuwah came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, thus says Yahuwah of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build thee temple that i may take pleasure in it and be glorified says yahuwah and so the two witnesses or the two anointed ones that were likened to lampstands and what was the other one olive trees are the two anointed ones who are they joshua the high priest and zerubbabel the governor of judah this is why we believe the witnesses of revelation 11 are two individual people because they are identified with Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were instrumental in restoring, rebuilding the temple during the time of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Is there a temple that needs building up? There is. What kind of temple? The spiritual temple, right? And so during the days... When it was starting out, when the remnants were starting out, there was a lot of discouragement because they were working on the temple, but they could only finish the foundation. That's it. They stopped. During our time today, when we became the remnant, right? What are we doing? We're building up the spiritual temple. We're building up the assembly of Yahushua. Are we large? We're small. We're very small. Just like during the days of the remnant group, the remnant people of Yisrael after captivity. We started out small. They were building, but there was great discouragement. They were delayed for 17 years. Did you know that? They were delayed for 18, 17, or 18 years. That's a long time. When they got the message from Zechariah and uh, Haggai, and they were encouraged and they were promised by Yahuwah to receive the spirit in just three and a half years, they finished it. It took them three and a half years to complete it. From the time they stopped until they completed it, 3.5 years. And so we know these two, the lampstands and the olive tree, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, they were instrumental in helping build up, completing the temple for the remnant of Israel. And so in Revelation 11.4, the two witnesses, these are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And so when we think of olive trees, we think of Israel. 
This is why the work of the two witnesses is to restore Israel. But at the same time, they also work from the, the work that they do is the work of the lampstand, which is to provide light, who is Yahushua. And so the two go together because the assembly of Yahushua, well, that's really Yeshurun. Because those who belong to Yahushua are grafted where? Yeshurun, right? The seed of Abraham is who? Yahushua. This is why when we belong to Yahushua, we belong also to Yeshurun. That's the nation of Yeshurun. Now, what is the work of the lampstands? Who are they? We know the golden lampstands represents the seven churches. And this is why the work of the two witnesses, right, will powerfully help the work of the assembly of Yahushua in Yahuwah's work of restoring Israel and bringing salvation to mankind through Yahushua. And so what do we need? How can we succeed? The history of Yahuwah's people in Zechariah and Haggai, they give us a template so that we can succeed as we work together with the coming of the two witnesses. How can we succeed? The Bible says concerning the two olive trees, and the lampstand, two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains. Do you know what that is? What does that represent? The oil. What does oil represent? The spirit of Yahuwah. This is why in Zechariah 4, this is what the prophecy says, which inspired Zerubbabel, which inspired also Joshua the high priest. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of Yahuwah to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahuwah of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Isn't that what exactly we need? That's exactly what we need. We're small right now, insignificant, right? Just like during the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. They were small, a remnant group. But the promise is, it is not by mind nor by power, but by my spirit. When we have the spirit of Yahuwah, what will we be able to do? The mountain that is before us, it will become what? Plain. In other words, Yahuwah will pulverize by his spirit all obstacles that stand in our way. Do you believe that? Beloved brethren, because it's something that we need to believe in. And if we believe it, we truly believe it, there's a kind of thinking that we should not adopt. What is that? Those who truly believe that by the spirit of Yahuwah, we can overcome all mountains and overcome all obstacles. What should we remove from our way of thinking? Zechariah 4.10. The people should not think that small beginnings are unimportant. They will be happy when they see Zerubbabel with tools building the temple. These are the seven eyes of Yahuwah, which look back and forth across the earth. Remember these seven spirits of Yahuwah? Remember what Yahuwah says to Zerubbabel? It is not by power or might, not by wealth, not by your human connections. It's by the spirit of Yahuwah. That's how you'll overcome all the obstacles and build the temple. Because Zerubbabel... And the people of Israel, they were so discouraged because they put all that hard work and all they can account for is like a small foundation. That's it. Small beginnings. 
And when we look at the assembly of Yahushua today, we're not large. We're very small. But the message that was given before, it's the same message given to us. Bible says, do not think that small beginnings are unimportant. Back then, they had Zerubbabel. They had Joshua, the high priest. But time will come when Yahuwah is going to send the two witnesses. And they're going to preach with power the message that we're already preaching. Because there's going to be an alignment. Otherwise, how can we work together with the two witnesses? When the two witnesses come, we will work together with them to build, not the physical temple, but what? The spiritual temple, the assembly of Yahusha. And so what is the message? In Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahuwah their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahuwah their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of Yahuwah. That's the key. For us to succeed, it's not enough that the two witnesses are going to be sent, but we have to heed the voice of Yahuwah. You notice the remnant, they were working together with the two lampstands, the two olive trees, Zerubbabel and Joshua. But what did they have to do to succeed? They had to obey the voice of Yahuwah. That's also what we need to do. And what is the message of Yahuwah to the people? This is what he says. Then Haggai, then Haggai, Yahuwah's messenger spoke. Yahuwah's message to the people, the remnant saying, I am with you, says Yahuwah. So Yahuwah stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahuwah of hosts, their God. And so that is what Yahuwah is going to do. He's working in us now with his spirit. But reinforcements are coming soon in the form of the two witnesses. We're small remnants now. Yes. But do not, do not uh, think that the, the small things are insignificant. Not think that way. Yahuwah can, be, can give triumph to a work that begins with one person, two persons. It doesn't matter how small it is. If Yahuwah will empower with his spirit, it will succeed. But for us to succeed, we must be steered up. We must be moved by the spirit of Yahuwah. So the work of the assembly and the two witnesses is to build up the spiritual temple of Yahuwah, which bears the name of Yahusha in preparation for the promised millennial kingdom. And so we told you there were, before the millennial kingdom will come, there are three events that have to come first, right? One right before that is the trampling of the holy city, the rise and power of the beast. And now before that is the preaching of the two witnesses. But even before that, going back all the way to Revelation 11.1, 1, there's something that also must happen first. In Revelation 11.1, 1, what was done? Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who... Worship there. When we wrote, when we read to you Zechariah chapter two about measuring Jerusalem, it was concerning the millennial promise of Yahuwah. Here, what is to be measured is the temple. The people is going to be measured. What does it mean that we're going to be measured? When you measure something, you're comparing it to a standard, right? 
because you cannot measure something without a standard. And what standard is that? A rod. You know what the rod represents? The authority and power of Yahusha. And our ultimate power and authority comes from who? Our King Yahusha. We're going to be measured. In other words, we're going to be judged. Why? Because there's going to be a rapture that's going to come soon. And those who meet the standard are the ones who are going to qualify to be mature enough to receive the harpazo, the blessing of Yahuwah. And so this tells us, Revelation 11.1, 1, when this is all happening, it's time for us to begin a self-examination. We need to make sure that when we are measured, that we are able to meet the standard that Yahuwah wants to see in a mature follower of Yahusha. And so when, this, when the Apostle John was instructed to measure the temple of God, to measure the altar, to measure the people who were worshiping there, what really is that all about? In 1 Peter, there's something that he speaks about. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. I mean, what's the house of God today? Isn't that the assembly? The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is sacred, is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? And so, brethren, this should really capture our attention. Revelation 11.1 1 opens with a promise. But for the promise to be fulfilled, we need to measure up to a certain standard. What is that standard? So that we will not, so that when we are judged, when we are measured, okay, we're not going to be judged for condemnation, condemnation, but judged to determine if we're mature enough. What is that standard? Ephesians 4.13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, those who are going to be harpazoed, those who are going to be raptured are the mature followers of Yahusha, not those who sit on the sidelines, not those who merely follow Yahusha as a ritual, but those who are able to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, those who become mature, right? It's like when you have a harvest, before you harvest anything, what do you do? You wait for it to be fully ripe, right? Before it is harvested, before it is raptured, it needs to be ripe enough. If it's not yet ripe, you let it be. And oftentimes, time of tribulation, that will ripen you up quickly, right? So there are those who are not yet ripe, not yet mature. They're going to be left behind. They're going to go through the ripening process. But those who are mature, they're going to be harpazo. We're going to be harvested when Yahusha appears. We want to reach that measure. We want to reach the full measure of the fullness of Christ. This is why we are beginning our discipleship program. We want to be able to teach and become true disciples of Yahusha so that we can attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Do you know what that means? How can we attain the, the fullness, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? We're almost done. I want you to read Matthew 5, 17 and 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I want to pause there for a while. The word fulfill, right there. You see the word fulfill? The word fulfill means to completely preach and accomplish. Completely, full measure. 
For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteous, your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so how can we attain the full measure of Yahusha? When we like what he gave us in his example, we have to obey. We should obey the teachings of Yahuwah and Yahusha. We cannot use our be being a disciple of Yahusha as a license to break the law, but as freedom to delightfully obey the law. We teach it and obey it. Those who teach it and obey it are great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they will attain that full measure of Yahusha. And so Yahusha brings us to himself so that we can grow to become like him. He must be the one that we should imitate so that we can be fully prepared for the great day of salvation. And what is the promise of the prophet Haggai to us today? In Haggai 2, 2, to, 2 down to 4, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, who was left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says Yahuwah, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong. All you people of the land, says Yahuwah, and work. That's the key phrase. And work, for I am with you, says Yahuwah of hosts. We're waiting for the sending of the two witnesses. We're waiting for the powers of the beasts to occupy the whole earth. We're waiting for the harpazo and the coming of the millennial kingdom. While we're waiting, we are to be strong. Why should we be strong? Because we have to work, but our strength will come from the spirit of Yahuwah. When we receive that spirit, when we receive that strength, we have to use that strength to work, to build up the assembly of Yahusha. What must be our goal? In Isaiah 62, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles, shall see your righteousness in all kings, your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahuwah will name. This is the work of the assembly. We are to preach righteousness until it goes forth as brightness because we are the lampstands of Yahusha. And we shine the light of Yahusha and the words of Yahuwah. That is the work of the assembly. And that is what we're going to do especially as we prepare for the work of discipleship. We want to spread the message of Yahuwah's gospel through Yahusha, our King and Mashiach. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and most holy Father, almighty Yahuwah in heaven, filled with joy and love, we approach you thankful because we know what you are preparing. Although we have to go through tribulation and many tests of faith, 
we focus upon your promise, upon the time when we shall be with you in deep fellowship. Father, we are but small and insignificant in number. But Father, we know you have a promise. And so we, by your spirit, not by our own strength and power, but by you working in us and through us, we know we can be instruments. And so help us to proclaim your righteousness. Teach us to proclaim and be witnesses, teaching people about you and about your beloved son, our King Yahushua, because we are your disciples. We will do our best to share our faith. We will be your witnesses. Help us to be strong. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be prepared in the work that is ahead. Father, bless each and every one of us, especially when we go through trial and tribulation. Manifest your self in us, your power and your spirit. May you heal those who may be sick among us and teach us to grow in our faith, in our knowledge of your holy words. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen.